You know, something we often do at the beginning of the year, we reestablish our sense of our identity and, and our goals and our aspirations, don't we? Uh, a lot of us do this personally in the form of New Year's resolutions. We do it in our work environments, uh, in education, uh, maybe also in our marriages and our families where we get together and try to reestablish ourselves and, and move forward and, and put our best foot forward in the new year, all right? Um, we all need to get on the same page about who we are and where we want to go. Well, church is no different. And so here this first Sunday of 2024, I want us to revisit our own sense of identity and purpose as a church. Why are we called Harvest Church? Why do we say we exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus? Well, here's why this is so important and necessary. Um, Y'all, it's great to have aspirations, but so often our very best intentions never touch the ground. They never become reality. We know this is true, and it's true for all of life potentially. So here's an example. Here we are in January. Many of you maybe are like me, and you've already resolved to eat better and exercise more. Oddly enough, it's the same resolution every single January of my adult life. I'm not sure. Uh, it's a great aspiration, isn't it? Man, eat better, exercise more. The problem, y'all, is I've got 40 years of bad habits working against me. And I lack self-control. And it's, frankly, it's a lot easier to reach in to the pantry and grab a handful of double-stuffed Oreos than it is to do the hard work of peeling a whole banana. Have you ever tried to peel a banana before? It's incredibly difficult when there are Oreos nearby. Uh, or take the Bible reading plan that we just started. And we've, we've pushed this out on the internet. If you're not aware of our Bible reading plan, so very easy to get started. Come find me or uh, scan the little QR code right there at the front table on your way out this morning. But we've got a Bible reading plan we're really excited about. It's not too late to start if you haven't started. But you know how it goes. If you ever tried to do a Bible reading plan in January, you start out strong, it's good, you want to read the Bible, you know it's good, it's important to read the Bible. But eventually, and, and usually it doesn't take that long, we get into Exodus, we get into Leviticus, we get busy, we get sick, we get behind a few days, and all, all of a sudden now three, four days turns into a week, and y'all a week? That's like 28 chapters. I'll never catch up now, that's what we tell ourselves, and so we just stop. And this great aspiration so often never becomes reality, it never takes root and becomes a habit. Well, today, y'all, Jesus has got a word for us about who we are and what we aspire to be as Christians. And I want to encourage us this morning. This is going to be a word of refreshment, just as it is also a word of challenge. And so let me summarize where we're going to go this morning from John chapter 4. The gospel, which means good news, the gospel tells us that our greatest hopes and aspirations are met in the person of Jesus Christ, not in anything that we must do. The gospel also tells us that Jesus brings us into his mission for the world as our new great purpose for life. So not only does Jesus meet us where we are and save us, but he brings us now to something we wouldn't otherwise be and makes us a part of his great purpose for this world. Both are true, and we see both, clearly in John chapter 4 this morning. So some of this, uh, y'all, I'm going to encourage you to read this chapter on your own. 
We don't have time to survey the whole thing. Some of this is going to be by way of summary. But what we see in John 4 is really one of the more incredible encounters of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, it's the story we often call the woman at the well. And it's one that if you've been around Harvest, you're familiar with because this is one of the hallmark stories that uh, establishes us as a church, which we'll see as well. So what happens in John chapter 4 is actually pretty scandalous. Jesus, in one fell swoop here, he pretty much breaks every cultural, religious, moral boundary that a good Jewish man was not meant to break. Jesus plows through them all. We see, first of all, that Jesus is passing through a land called Samaria. And John tells us in this chapter that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Racially, culturally, religiously, Jews did not associate with Samaritans because Samaritans were considered unclean and ungodly. But Jesus is passing through their country. And there in Samaria, Jesus stops to rest at a well right outside of a town. And his disciples leave him there to go into town to buy lunch because they're famished. Then out comes a woman to the well all by herself. She's coming to draw water. And Jesus engages with this woman by asking her for a drink. And that begins an amazing conversation. This Samaritan woman really can't believe that Jesus is even speaking with her because, again, all of the cultural and racial divides that existed, those things ran very deep. So here we have a Jewish man speaking with a Samaritan woman, which was unheard of. And then we find out on top of that that this woman is a moral outcast who is presently living in sexual sin, something that Jesus just miraculously knows all about and exposes in their conversation. But the most stunning part of all of this is that in spite of all these strikes against her, that she is a Samaritan, she's a woman, she's immoral, these things that would seem to prohibit the conversation from ever getting off the ground, Jesus pushes through those things and offers this woman a gift, what he calls living water. Not physical water drawn up from a well, but a living water. Something so wonderful that if you taste of it, you will never thirst again, Jesus says. He's offering this woman eternal life and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Now, she's clued in to the depth and spiritual nature of this conversation because the woman eventually says, oh, okay, one day Messiah will come and he'll reveal all these things to us. And Jesus responds, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Not one day Messiah will come. He has come and you're looking at him. Now, that first part of the story that we just summarized, it really just sets up the second half for us today at least. And this is our focus. I want you to look at what happens next. John chapter 4, verse 27. At this point, Jesus' disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, so we're tracking here with what's going on. The woman has left. She left her water pot there at the well, and she's gone now to proclaim to her townspeople this thing that has just happened to her. The disciples show up. They cross paths here as the woman is leaving. They show up with food, and they're begging Jesus to eat because they know he's famished. And Jesus, in the midst of all of this, makes one of the more significant statements in all of the Bible. Y'all, Jesus said a lot of things that are more famous than this. But he very rarely, I think, said anything more important than this. When Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, when Jesus speaks of his food, he's talking about this very natural, sustaining, necessary thing for life. That's what food is. There are only a certain number of things we need to survive. Food, water, air. This is one of them. Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. That is, I have a, a, a sustaining, strengthening, animating center of my life that you're unaware of. Y'all, what Jesus is saying here is, of course, he's not talking about food. He's talking about his purpose, his reason for coming to earth in the first place. He says, this is my necessary food, my bread. This is my central mission. And so what is he talking about? What is this food? Well, the disciples don't understand, of course. They never do, by the way. But thankfully for them and for us, because we wouldn't know either, Jesus elaborates. Look at verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Uh, Cliff's notes, for the sake of time. Jesus is talking about disciple-making here. What is this harvest he speaks of? The harvest is made up of the many, many people that will come to faith in Christ and walk as his disciples. That means you and I, if you are a Christian, you are part of this great harvest Regardless of time or place, we are all part of the harvest of God's righteousness and grace. But you notice this, that Jesus does not leave the harvest up to uh, his mission solely. He's giving the task away. He's sharing it. The task of sowing and reaping he speaks of as belonging to the disciples, to us. And so back in verse 35, look at 35 again. He says, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, you don't have to be a farmer to be able to make this uh, distinction. 
Uh, if you were driving by a field, a crop, and we're, let's talk about spring harvest for the sake of, of our, our location and time here. It's January, and perhaps something's going to grow up and, and, um, and be harvested maybe late spring, April or May. Well, if you drive by in January, you're not going to see very much, maybe nothing at all. Or what you see is going to be all, seemingly all tilled up, torn up, just beginning, but not ready. And anybody can tell when it's not yet ready, right? But then Jesus says, that's not the harvest I'm talking about. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is talking about a harvest that is right now, not yet somewhere far away, but here and now, right in front of us. Now, many commentators have pointed this out over the years, and I think it's probably true. Y'all remember what's happening here in the larger context of this account. Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. Meanwhile, the woman has run into town to tell her neighbors, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And John tells us that the townspeople had left what they were doing and they were coming out to see him. And so when Jesus is instructing his disciples here, telling them, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white for harvest. They're ripe and ready. Most likely what Jesus is doing is very tangible. He's telling them to lift up their eyes and look at actual people who are coming from an actual place to see him. These are real people with real faces. This is not a spiritual idea that exists somewhere outside of us. He says, look, the harvest, as people are making their way to see him, as the crowd is approaching him at the well. And so the application was right there for the disciples, and it's here for us. Look at verse 36 again. Already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Clearly, Jesus is talking about something spiritual, but not intangible. Something real that we actually do, a real sowing and a reaping that, that has to do with eternal life. And so here's, again, Cliff's notes, here's what Jesus is saying here. To sow and reap is simply this. Sowing, which is planting, means pointing people to eternal life in Jesus, sharing the gospel. And then, of course, reaping is what we sometimes get to experience, actually seeing them come to faith, receiving Christ and walking with him as his disciples. This is the great work of the harvest that Jesus is talking about, the planting of the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ and his grace, and then the reaping, the seeing and celebrating of people who receive life in his name. And y'all, we shouldn't miss the connection here. All right, let's put the two pieces together. Remember what Jesus said when the disciples are trying to shove food into his mouth. They know he needs to eat, and yet somehow he's not hungry. He's already eaten. I have food to eat that you don't know about. It's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What was Jesus talking about? What's the will and the work of God that Jesus has come to do? It's the harvest. It's the very same work that he's giving to the disciples. It's what he's just done in this conversation with this woman, exposing her sin and her need, but offering her life and living water. 
That which is about to take place, spoiler here, when the townspeople show up, they're going to find in Jesus the very same thing that she's now discovered, that he's the Savior who's come to forgive them and to grant them life. This is the harvest. This is what Jesus has come to do. And yet, when Jesus speaks of his own will and work, he doesn't hold on to it exclusively. That would be an easy thing to do. Now, I've used this illustration before, I think, but you know, if you're a parent and you've got a young child, uh, you keep the sharp stuff up high when your children are young. They're not ready for knives or saws or, or you know, dangerous things. But at some point, if your child is 14, 18, 35, and you still keep the knives out of reach, right, then that, that's, not a, that's not the child's fault or their problem. That's my problem. I have failed to raise them up. I failed to teach them and entrust them with the grown-up stuff. Well, what if Jesus were to come along and say, listen, I'll do the saving, I'll do the preaching, you guys just watch. You guys take care of the food. Go into town and buy lunch, and I'll do the heavy lifting. All right? That would make sense. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one with the plan. But here Jesus is marrying these two things together. This is not just his mission solo, and we stand around in the gallery and applaud. He says, you're going to harvest. You're going to step in. You're going to sow and you're going to reap. You get to be a part of this. You get to point people to the only source of life and salvation, which is in me. And so what is God's will and God's work? It is the harvest, and Jesus calls us into that same work. So when Jesus speaks of what he came to do, y'all remember when he spoke with Zacchaeus in the book of Luke? Jesus made his mission very clear. The Son of Man, he says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so if you're here and you trust in Jesus Christ, you have been sought and you have been saved. This is your grace that you now live in. Jesus says, I'm calling you, my disciple, into that same mission, right? To seek out those who are lost and to point them to life in Christ, the very same life that we've been given. If Jesus has brought you to himself, then he now delights to send you back out into the harvest from which you came so that you might point others to him as well. And y'all, if that's not enough, if the sowing privilege is not enough to actually go out and share the grace that we've been given, Jesus says we'll get to rejoice over those who receive him too. And this maybe doesn't happen quite as frequently. Sometimes we sow more than we reap. Jesus did too, by the way. He shared the gospel with a lot more people than he actually saw in time receive it. Not everybody who receives the word um, rejoices over it and becomes a Christian, but many do. And we get the privilege of that too. This one who sows and the one who reaps rejoice together, Jesus says. And so when Jesus says, this is my necessary food, he's speaking of his own mission, his own conviction, but he doesn't leave it with himself. He says, lift up your eyes, disciples, and look. Your mission, the great harvest, is right here in front of you. And y'all, after Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave at the end of John... He speaks again to his disciples as one who is raised from the dead and he communicates to them the very same central mission. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So what are we doing here? Why does this church exist? Or any Bible-believing church, why do we exist? It's because what Jesus said then is still true now. The fields are white for harvest. 
The time is now. Y'all, elsewhere, Jesus, if you're familiar with this harvest idea, there are places in the gospel where Jesus speaks of God's harvest. And he says the harvest is plentiful. But what? The workers are few. And so what are we supposed to do? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers into it. So the harvest, as Jesus pictures it, is not an organization. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's the souls of people He came to save through His own life and death and resurrection. And the laborers are few, He says, though the harvest is plentiful. And so as long, y'all, as long as there are people in Jackson, Mississippi, or in Karachi, Pakistan, or Paris, France, as long as there are people not walking with Jesus by faith, we need more churches, not fewer. We need more disciples committed to the mission of Jesus. The status quo will not do. We're meant to view this as Jesus did, as our necessary food. Our greatest purpose and joy in life is to sow and reap, to make Jesus known and to celebrate those who come to faith in Him and that the fire would grow brighter as we go so that we never become complacent, but we're always seeking to make more and more and more of our Savior. Or we could say it this way, we exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. That's why we're here. And that's not pastor talk. That's not church talk. That is, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is your mission. Now, it's vital that we don't skip over the last part of this account in John chapter 4, because here, this is endlessly fascinating to me. Jesus is giving the message, the lesson to the disciples. We're not going to see the disciples begin to act this out, really, until next week until Acts, after the resurrection. But there is an application to be found here in John chapter 4. The lesson is for the disciples, but the application is carried out by the Samaritan woman. And this is so amazing. To the, the least likely person in this story to come across as a hero or someone we admire and imitate is her, but here it is. She's living it out. Look at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, as a reminder, this is a woman who by every account was completely discredited. Uh, even in, among her own culture, not just compared to a good Jewish person, we've got a woman who is immoral. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman in the, in the place and time in which she lived, that was strike one, strike two, strike three, she's out. 
How could a person like that be a credible witness for Jesus? And yet she's the model here. And we're meant to see it. John could have hidden that away if he wanted to protect you know, the, the, the higher standard of repute that, that people wanted to uphold maybe in his own culture. He could have suppressed the story of the woman, but he didn't. He highlights it. She's the one who brought these folks to Jesus. She's the initial voice that brought them to a point of hearing and believing. Eventually, they turn from her to Christ's full face because they heard for themselves. But Jesus, uh, uh, I think, intends for this woman to be our model here. She didn't know very much, very clearly. She didn't understand the gospel. She didn't have a PowerPoint presentation of the finer points of the atonement. She didn't know any of that. But what she did know, what she did know, she took back to her neighbors and she beckoned them to come and see this man for themselves. And because she pointed them to Christ, because she didn't keep her experience inside, she made it known, y'all, a great number of her neighbors received life in his name. They became Christians. We'll meet them perhaps one day. And so there's two things I want us to see as standing out in, in this scripture. First, concerning the woman's uh, position, but then secondly, considering her action here. First, nobody, not in this room, not in your family, not in any of your circles of influence, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. And some of us need to hear that for ourselves this morning. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The woman in this story, she's about as low down on the ladder as a person can get. And yet here we see the Lord Jesus looks himself, he looks into her parched soul and all of her sins and failures, and he offers her the water of life. He knows the depth of her sin and her need, but he does not recoil away from her as so many others might have done. He moves toward her. He initiates and extends to her all of his grace. He offers her life. And if you're a sinner like her, if you're a sinner like me, then this is, there's no better news in all the world that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And just like this woman, y'all, there's, there's nothing about her, according to the account here, that she cleaned up first, that she buttoned up first, and then she was eligible. There's no word of that. What she lacked in morality, what she lacked in qualification, Jesus held none of those things against her. He gave her life because she trusted him and she brought her neighbors to do the same. You don't have to clean up your act first because that's what grace is. Grace is God's extending of his mercy and kindness without regard for our worthiness. He offers us living water just the same. Life from God and life with God that has no end. What she received, anyone may receive. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That's the woman's posture that we learn from, but also look at her action. We witness in this woman that she is a credible witness of God's grace for precisely the reasons we just mentioned. Come see this man who offered me living water in spite of me. She can carry the gospel because the gospel is not a message of how good I've become and maybe if you try hard, you can be like me too. No, the message is look at him. Come to him, trust in him. 
And so, y'all, I can assure you that this woman has less pedigree, less education, less rep reputation than anybody here, but it was her desire for others to see him, to know him, to hear for themselves, that gives her credibility as a witness. She had encountered the Lord and she wanted them to know him too. And it's, it's her desire that we see on display here. Y'all, think about how embarrassing it would have been for this woman, knowing her past, her station in life, to go back into town and make this confession. This man has told me everything I've ever done. And her neighbors are like, everything? Everything? Really? They know who she is. You can't hide all your secrets in this time and place. But she had encountered something so dramatic, so wonderful, that she had to make it known. What she lacked in qualification, she made up for in hunger, in desire. Whoever this man Jesus is, I want you to see him for yourself. I want you to know him too. Now, we all have more knowledge and more resources than this woman did. The question is not about knowledge or resources or reputation. The question is about desire. Do I possess in my heart a conviction so strong that I would build my whole life around it? Am I so committed to what Jesus is calling me to do here, of joining in His mission and, and taking up the labor of the harvest? Am I so committed that all of my other life and priorities would take shape around that? Because that's my necessary food. That's my mission for life. That's the question. And this is the, the sting of this story that I think we're all meant to feel. Y'all, the truth is, my heart does not beat at the same rhythm as what we see in this story. And often it's true for me that just it's, it's bad habits of mine that get in the way. I want to give y'all three bad habits of mine by way of confession. I just want to see if perhaps you resonate with these things. What would keep me from living the way Jesus has just told me and us to live? Uh, three things that hinder me. One is the bad habit that I have of looking through people. Y'all, I spend a lot of my life operating within the world and not really seeing and attending to people, not really thinking of people who are right in front of me. Everybody serves their own function. We're all driving around. We're, we got cashiers over here. We got people doing this and that and everything else. And I'm just one of those people. And I just kind of look through them because I've got places to be and I've got things to do. And so often, frankly, so often I'm staring at something else instead of at the people that are right in front of me and available to me. And I'm exchanging pleasantries, but I'm not really seeing people. And therefore, I'm not taking the time to consider them, to care about them, to wonder what their needs might be or how I might be able to share and help and love and bless. I just see right through them. Y'all, if you're familiar with something Jesus did, uh, there was a time where Jesus looked out at the crowd of people. And with great compassion, the scripture says, he looked upon them because they were dispirited and discouraged like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart broke for them. Do I see people like that? Or do I just see right through them on my way to everything else I've got going on? It's more than just a bad habit. It's really a sin that I don't see people as bearing the image of God in need of His grace 
and therefore I just coast right along. Second bad habit is that so often I look inward much more than I look outward. Y'all, I'm the first person I think of when I wake up in the morning. And so often I'm thinking about myself, my own fears, my own needs, my concerns, my, my own ambitions, my own desires. I'm just, I become so naturally very inwardly focused and I do not think of myself chiefly as a, as a laborer in the harvest. And y'all, I'm a pastor, it's my job. And yet it's so natural for me to think otherwise, to, to succumb to what's more natural to me, which is just, just life and the, the, the normal patterns of inwardness and selfishness. All, so many of my concerns are related to me and my, my very tight circle around me. And I very, very rarely uh, think beyond me so that I would actually care about those who are lost, who don't know Christ. So I would care about the nations, those who have never even heard of Christ. Because that's not my, that's not my typical avenue in which I travel. And so I become more and more inward. I love to be comfortable. I don't want to be challenged too hard. Just enough, but not too much. It's such an easy sin for me to fall into. Of thinking inwardly and not outwardly. And I need, if, I'm, if, I'm, if, this, is you, if this is you at all, then the word for me, for you this morning, Jesus says, lift up your eyes. Kyle, lift up your eyes. That was a physical reality for the disciples in that moment. Lift up your eyes. There are actual people coming to hear me that you will have the opportunity to share in ministry with. But for me, it's not, it's, it's, it's not just tangible. It's look how get your eyes off of you for half a second and consider the great thing that God's called me to be, the great work that he's called me into. So I've got a bad habit of looking through people and not at them. I've got a bad habit of living inwardly. And then thirdly, I've got a bad habit of living in prayerlessness. Uh, my, my prayer life is so often dry and tepid. Uh, when I do pray so often, I'm just, I'm praying, God, help me through the day. Help my family. Which is a fine prayer, by the way. We certainly need God's help to get through the day. But y'all, just think more broadly here with me for a minute. Is that, is, is the only thing that God has saved us and put us on this earth to do is to help us get through the day. Sometimes I know that's how we feel. That's all we can hope for. is just to claw our way through the day by God's grace. I know that. That's life sometimes. But is that all? That when I pray to God, I, why am I not praying with boldness for the very things I know are his will? Because Jesus just told us his will. That I would enter into the harvest as one who sows and reaps and rejoices over his great work, which he has delighted to share with me, with us. Why don't I pray for that? Why am I content to just get through the day by God's help? when he has called me to something eternally significant and wonderful and beyond my ability to do apart from prayer and his spirit. Y'all, I, I hope you're like me. You feel the weight of this. We're meant to. That on the one hand, we rejoice in the fact that, there, that all of our joys, our hopes, our aspirations for life are met in Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered, does God really love me? Could God really forgive me? Is there really hope for me in this life and in the life to come? The answer is yes, because of Jesus. 
He has come to seek and save that which is lost. You are part of the great harvest that He has entered in to cultivate. There's nothing you must do to receive this grace. It's free. But having received Him, Jesus now joyfully and urgently sends us back out. He does not incubate us so that we might just enjoy a nice, comfortable Christian life and then one day we go to heaven. He sends us out, outward, outward, for the sake of the harvest so that what I have received, others may also hear of and receive in like manner. Y'all, Harvest Church is not just a name we happen to like. It is our vision. It's our mission wrapped up in a single word. And so for me, for 2024, and this is, this is not a cliche, this is not a New Year resolution. This is just me, I pray, sincerely, putting my feet firmly in the ground and looking ahead and saying, by God's grace, this is what I will be. This is what we will be. Forgetting what lies behind. I haven't had a good track record of this in the past. So be it. Forgetting what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead and I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3. That's what I want to be. That's what Harvest Church is meant to be. That's the reason we're here. And anything less, we fall short of what God has for us and for the world around us. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says. Right now, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white, ripe and ready for harvest. Right now, by God's grace. And so let's do what Jesus said to do. Let's pray for laborers to enter into the harvest, locally, globally, within our homes, within our church, with all of our disciple-making efforts, whatever we put our hands and our hearts to as Harvest Church this year, let's pray for the thing that Jesus said to pray for, and y'all, spoiler, we're praying not for laborers somewhere else out yonder merely. The people we're praying for are in this room. We are those laborers. And so let's pray for ourselves as well. Father, I, I do pray for an appropriate conviction for me. And let it start with me. Lord, I trust that within this room or those online, Lord, there, there are people, Lord, who are expending, Lord, great energy and heart um, doing this very thing we're seeing in John 4. Thank you for them. Lord, fan into flame more and more for them, Lord, what they've already committed themselves to. Where, Lord, where we have seen good fruit at Harvest Church, where I've seen good fruit in my own life, Father, I pray encouragement. But Lord, this conviction uh, is, is needed. Um, so often, Lord, I just, I'm looking down. I'm looking inward. I'm not looking up. Father, so often I'm, I, I, I enjoy the good grace you've given me but I'm not eager to go out and share it with someone else. Lord, so often I'm, I have great concern for the things that happen in my own life and family and home and very little concern with what happens elsewhere.
in our community and around the world. And so, Father, I pray, I pray this morning for me and, and for any of us that, to which this applies, Lord, that you would grant us repentance, Lord, a changing of our minds, a recognition that, Lord, you have saved us for something greater than our own personal experience of salvation. Precious as this is to us, Lord, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you. But you've saved us also, Lord, to propel us back out, to send us back into the very place from which we came so that we might eagerly share, so that we might desire as this woman did, for others to come into contact with Jesus as we have. So, Lord, that we might have a, a heart of compassion as we look at the world around us, Lord, and we don't have to look far. We see what Jesus saw. People who are discouraged and dispirited, they are sheep without a shepherd. Father, grant us the same compassion that filled the heart of Christ, the same necessary food that drove Him in His mission. Lord, plant deep in us this heart to sow and to reap as our central mission for life. And everything else, Lord, would take its place in orbit around this main thing, Lord. Father, I pray you challenge us as a church this morning. If we dabble in this, we'll never see it come to fruit. It's meant to be central. We cannot dabble. We cannot leave this uh, as, a, as a, an elective. This is core. And so, Father, I pray for all, not just individual level, but all of us together to look around and say, we are those Jesus had in mind. When he said, those who sow and those who reap will rejoice together. He had us in mind. We are the laborers, Lord, called into your harvest. And so, Father, as we have, have freely received, I pray we would freely give and that we would find no greater joy in this life than to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. Father, let it start right here. We may not know what all to do yet, but let it start, Lord, I pray, with a burning heart, a heart like the woman who ran to town to tell of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.